Thank you, Kathy, for the introduction today. I love to hear you sing and love to sing that particular song especially. Thank you, Jesus, because, boy, he's the author of everything. So we're in a brand new year. Uh, you already got the introduction last week from Blair. Uh, this is a brand new year for me. And, um, and just think, the days are getting longer every day. We just started, but uh, we're going to get more and more sunshine until summer actually comes. So that's good news. I want to talk about contentment. We're starting a series today called Cold Hard Cash and Contentment. And uh, it's not like there's a difference between the two. It's just that the cold hard cash part is kind of our world system. Contentment is what it promises, but it's something that really only God can give. So most of us have experienced this, right? You know, you remember the song by Mick Jagger, you know, just can't get no satisfaction. And most people can identify with that. You know, you get something, you've wanted it for a while, you finally get it, you show it to your friends, and you're just tickled to have it and so on. And then it kind of loses its shine. You know, you're still paying for it three years later, and you're thinking, I'm not sure I like this anymore. And that kind of happens to everybody. Years ago, uh, Lori and I bought a 1988 uh, Mercury Sable red, metallic red sable. I remember when we got, I loved that car. I remember getting into it and talking to Lori and saying, do you think that maybe this is, you know, too nice of a car for a pastor to own? And she just laughed. Well, that was our transitional car, okay? So we decided that we were going to stop making payments on cars and we were just going to drive that thing until the wheels fell off. And we almost did. So bump that up a few years. You know, we're down in Pennsylvania on Thanksgiving, and I was making a visit to a friend and uh, encountered a guardrail on the way out. And I think I told you about that. It was like a 75-foot drop-off, but I still wrecked the car. So a friend came out, pulled the car off the guardrail, took it in and fixed it. But when we got it back, it was like two different shades of red. And I didn't love the car anymore. Bump that up a few more years. And my sons actually started making fun of our car. When we moved up here, we started calling it, it was shortcake uh, because it was a Mercury Sable, Sable, you know, French for shortcake. And uh, so they said that they could hear it coming. They'd be out, you know, playing street hockey with their friends, and they could hear this thing coming down the road. And they started actually making fun of it. And then their friends were laughing at it, okay? And I said to them, I said, all old things make peculiar noises, even people. Well, when we finished with Shortcake, we thought, well, you know, it'd be good to be able to give this car to somebody else still running well and so on, and, and it could help out somebody else. They wouldn't even take it for charity to help somebody else. So anyways, we really did, you know, kind of run the wheels off the thing. Shortcake and numerous other things that I've owned, you know, have proven to me that if you're trying to buy contentment, it will never happen. It will never happen. It's way too expensive. Way too expensive for me, and I'm guessing for you too. And I'll tell you why. See, the odds are stacked against your being content. Last year, um, there was $512 billion that was spent on marketing, on advertising, okay? That's up, and that's down 11% from 2019. You know, advertising and marketing could be called manufacturing discontentment. In other words, you know, you may be contented for a little while with what you have, but if you watch enough ads, I can guarantee you that you will be discontent by the time they're through. And you just need to understand, you know, it's kind of, you know, man, you, marketing is kind of in bed with the devil because the devil knows that if he can make you discontented with how much money you have or who you're married to or how your kids are doing or how nice your car is or how much money you make, it's good. 
it's going to be much easier for you to step over some line that you swore you'd never cross. And it's called the center line down your highway. And when you think about it, you know, discontentment is kind of the gateway to breaking most of the Ten Commandments. Commandment number 10 is don't covet. And, you know, basically the first nine are about, you know, how we do that, how we break, you know, how we covet and what we, how we get what we want. Now, here's the irony. There are a lot of people who have possessions that you would never want. I mean, they have a situation in life that you would never want. You look at them and, you know, they're not bad, but they're not all that attractive. You wouldn't want to look like them. You're not jealous of them, you know. But they're content. They're not lazy. They're not just satisfied with the status quo and floating downstream. But they are at peace with that crusty little monster in size that says, I need more. I demand more. I demand to be treated better. I demand more out of life. It's called contentment. It's called discontentment, actually, and you can't afford it. You will die being discontented if you go after that. And when it comes to discontentment, you have to be careful because it's one of the most destructive things on the planet. Like it's more construct, it's more you know destructive than rust and germs and COVID nineteen. Because believe it or not, you know discontentment can turn you know a three year old perfectly good SUV into an embarrassment. It can turn a three-year-old, you know, iPhone into an antique. It can destroy things. And discontentment, discontentment has the power to ruin your marriage, ruin your possessions, and ruin your relational world. And I'll tell you, it will leave you with a rock for a heart because you always need more. You can't afford contentment, but you can have it because God gives it to us. Now, into a world that seems to be discontented no matter how much it gets, God offers contentment, as I mentioned, to poor ordinary slobs just like me and like you, I might add. Listen to what Paul says about contentment, and he probably talks more extensively about it than anybody else. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned but had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it's like to be in need. I know what it's like to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. So this is going to kind of be the saying that I want you to remember, okay? You can't afford contentment. You can't afford it, but you can have it. And Paul talks about how. Now, discontentment and contentment can be summarized with two words, okay? Discontentment can be perfectly described by the word more. And contentment can be described by the word enough. And Paul says you can learn the secret. He said, I learned the secret. It's not easy. It won't happen overnight. But it's something that God can do deep in our hearts. Now, just to kind of set this up properly, let me talk about the context that Paul found himself in when he actually wrote these words about contentment. As many of you know, Paul at one time, you know, had pretty much sponsored himself. He paid all of his own expenses and the expenses of the rest of his team by making tents. So he learned how to sew, learned how to make tents. And it brought him a lot of satisfaction. He wanted to be able to support himself, okay? But then he was thrown in jail. Now, in jail back in those days, I mean, they didn't have color TV and little bunks and so on and places, libraries where you could go and study. In prison, you didn't have food, you didn't have clothes, blankets, writing paper, 
anything unless somebody brought them to you. Now, I want you to think of yourself in a place that isn't just miserable, okay? But the only way you can survive is if somebody comes along and gives something to you. It's a pretty miserable place to be, okay? Paul's faith in Jesus and his work for Jesus had brought him to a place in life where nobody envied him, okay? He had no material possessions. He had no status and really tough circumstances that most people would have been really, really discontented with and happy about and frustrated with. And it's in these horrible, degrading circumstances that Paul comes up with a shocking teaching. And he says, I'm content. I have everything I need. More specifically, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Now, if you've ever been at a place of real need in your life where you're not sure you can pay the bills, where, you know, everything in your life is substandard and so on, you know, you understand. Paul says, I've been there. I know what that's like. And Paul also says, I know what it's like to have plenty. At one point in his life, he was probably in the top 10% of the, of the wealthiest uh, in his country. And then in the day of that time, in the time, uh, in that day. He's one of the best educated Pharisees of his day. He was at the head of his class. People envied him. People wanted to be him. People wanted him around. And then he lost it all. And he says, but I have learned to be content. Now here's my question. How many of you think that Paul just kind of painlessly downsized his lifestyle, you know, from being at the top 10% to the bottom 10%? No problem. No struggle. Like he just, you know, was like riding an elevator down and he was happy at the bottom. Paul's actually pretty transparent about his own struggle with contentment. Listen to what he says. He's, he's talking, and this is in actually Romans chapter 7, and he's talking about his struggle with covenant. He says, indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. And the law is pretty specific about this. It says, don't covet your neighbor's field, don't covet their barn, don't covet their house, don't covet their kids, don't covet their mule or their horses or their fields or their wife, anything. And so it basically fits just about every category. Now, coveting, by definition, is discontentment. And Paul says, I was filled with every kind of covetous desire. You know, and according to the Ten Commandments, coveting goes way beyond stuff, and it includes people and so on. It's looking at other people's kids or other people's parents and thinking, you know, why can't my kids be like that? It's looking at other people's parents and saying, you know, how come I got dorkwads for parents? Why couldn't I get cool parents? You know, you look at what somebody else has, and then what happens is you begin to, this little feeling of self-pity comes in. You begin to feel sorry for yourself. You feel a sense of loss. You sense that, you know, life is unfair and unequal. And you think, why can't I have that? You look at, you know, somebody else's spouse and says, I'd like to get me one of those. And moving from covetousness to contentment, Paul reveals something amazing. He says, I have learned that contentment is unrelated to how much you have or who you have in your life. Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. There's a secret to it, and you have to learn the secret. And there are times in life when you have to relearn it, okay? A couple reasons why it's so hard to learn the secret of contentment, and one is just good old-fashioned depravity, you know? Like... (laughs) This depravity, this part of us, you know, it's just, I want more. I need more, you know, and it's just like, I, I will get more 
of whatever I need somehow. We live in a, and then the other part of it is that we live in a culture that manufactures discontentment. So you could kind of look at it like this. Okay, here's me, and then what stands in the way of what I want sometimes are the Ten Commandments. You think about, you know, the last commandment is don't covet, and then the other ones it says don't have any other gods before you. Well, why would you do that? Well, it's because the God that you're serving won't give you what you want. It says, you know, well, don't have any idols. Well, why would you have an idol? Well, it's because, you know, the things that you want become your God, you know. Why is it that, you, you know, it says don't steal, don't murder. Why do people do that? It's so that they can get what they want. And so what happens, you know, with covenanting is that what the Bible has to say about living your life, it stands between you and what you want, and it just makes you miserable. And the secret of being content has to do with basically tearing down that wall. Now, is anybody, you know, and we are constantly filled with this on the ads and the, and the marketing and stuff that goes on, you know, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or, or TV or something. Have you ever heard anybody say something along the lines of, you know, hey, you don't need more. You have enough. You don't need a better car. You don't need a bigger home. You don't need, you know, a cool adrenaline vacation. You don't need a bu- bigger bus line or slimmer thighs or thicker, more luxurious hair or, or you know, better lashes. I mean, you don't need six-pack abs. You know, a keg will do or, you know, maybe a, a two-pack. And it's the monster of more. You need more. You need to look better. You need to look more cool. And in our culture, I'm telling you, this stuff on, you know, Netflix and YouTube and everything, it plays a major role. You just watch an evening of ads some night and ask yourself as each of the ads come up, is this ad true? Are they telling the truth? And the answer most of the time is no. So just say it with me, okay? Wherever you happen to be, if you're watching in your living room or wherever you are, just say, most ads lie. They tell you untruths so that they can manufacture discontent in your heart with what you have so that you'll buy their product. Did you know that most, there are people out there that are paid just a lot of money, okay, mega bucks, to find out what the soft spot inside you is, to find out how to get inside that desire in your heart and crank it open so that you can get exploited? Now, we have basic needs, right? We all have needs for food and for water and shelter and so on. We have needs for companionship and friendships and stuff. But we also have needs for other things, like respect from other people, you know, We have needs for meaning and significance in life. And what the commercials are promising most of the time is people will really like you. People will think you're really cool. People will really want you around. You know, this will make you a better person if you have our product. Now, is that true? Of course not. You can't buy that kind of stuff. And and the problem is that in our hearts, you know, I mean, the whole thing works. Remember the law of exposure? And this whole thing comes right after the law of exposure. We believe that better and more expensive things will meet our needs and satisfy us. And once that process begins in your brain, that you need this thing to be a better person and to have more friends or have other people think that you're cool, it will continue. Your brain will work on that until you actually get what you want, no matter what lines you have to cross to do it. It will. That's just the way we're made. Now, here's what you need to know about discontentment. This is the itch that just can't quite get scratched. And if you, and if you try to take this road down to the end, the end of that road is debt, which means that you have less margin, which means that you have less to work with, which means that you know, your money is going out to somebody else. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that week, about that next week. 
But I'm telling you, this whole thing, when you lose this margin and when you just can't scratch this itch, I mean, it destroys lots of stuff and it will take you into debt. And besides eating at our souls and eating at our happiness and eating away the margin in our lives, discontentment ultimately strangles one of the most important things that God asks us to do. And one of the most satisfying things is generosity. See, you know, if you give in to this whole thing of discontentment and so on, and you lose your margin when it comes to your finances and everything like that, and then God prompts you to be generous, what you're going to say is, why well, can't afford to be generous? Why would I give my stuff away when I don't have enough for me? And it just gets very distractive, very destructive in our lives. And we t- when we turn down generosity, we turn down one of the most meaningful things that we do. We turn down a chance to be like God because that's what God's like. God is generous. And here's what I know. See, many times we live this kind of thing where we think, well, you know, when I get this and when, when, then I, when I have that, when I get the car I want, when I, you know, get this, then happiness is still out in the distance there someplace. And I'm telling you, it will always be out there. It's kind of this when and then. When this happens, then I'll be happy. When this happens, then I'll be grateful. And one of the most, one of the most important steps toward contentment is saying, I will be grateful now. I'm not going to wait. I will be grateful now. Now, here's the question I want to ask you, and this is probing a little bit. If I were to sit down and talk with your friends and talk with your family, would they say that you're a grateful person? That you're more thankful than you are whining and complaining about what you don't have or what you don't like? What would they say? Because that'll give you some hints about where you're at on this. Here, you know, think about this. Have you ever gotten down on your knees and thanked God for all that he's given you and just said, I am so grateful, God, for your presence in my life. I'm so grateful that you love me. I'm so grateful for every single thing that you've given me. Because many times, you see, prayer becomes, you know, this thing of, you know, kind of going to the, you know, the magic bottle and rubbing it just the right way so that we can get more. Paul writes this about money to Timothy, and he says this, and yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. Godliness, in other words, being like God with contentment in your heart is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world. Anybody bring something with them? Like you kind of dragged it along with you, you know, when you were born? No, (laughs) we all came naked, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let's be content. That's pretty basic, isn't it? Listen to what Paul writes about discontentment. He goes on to say in the same passage, he says, but people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. He says long to be rich. It's not talking about people you know, who want to be millionaires or billionaires or you know, have a penthouse in every high building in the world. This isn't what that's talking about. It's talking about who want to have more than they already have, who want to just you know, be able to have life easy. See, most of what we do in life is a choice. Love is not something that you fall into. You know, contrary to what the ads say, I mean, we, we fall in love. What that basically means is that we're really attracted and infatuated with the person until we get to know them, and then we have to learn how to love them. So love is a choice that you make. Joy is a choice that you make. Joy isn't just coming into all the right circumstances. It's a choice that you make, and so is contentment. And why that is so important, you see, to understand is that you are the only one who can make that choice. You're the only one who can make the choice, make the choice to be joyful. 
Will you choose, you see, will you be choose to be grateful and contented with what you have? Or are you just going to keep on fighting? And by the way, I looked up the word um, on, uh, on contentment and so on, and I'm going to get into that in a little bit. This is the monster of more that lives in everybody's heart where, you know, all the discontent gets, gets manufactured. I looked up contentment, content in the world, being content in the, uh, in the Webster's Dictionary. And it's actually a root part of the uh, word contend. Now, if you're familiar with the word contend, it means to fight. It means to strive. It means to, you know, constantly bang on the doors and always after something, okay? Contend. You're contending for something. Content means that what you've contended for, you have peace about. And that's an interesting, uh, interesting equation, isn't it? So be grateful now. The second principle in learning contentment is don't compare yourself to others. But actually, that's the name of the game here in Toronto, isn't it? You know, um, has anyone besides me ever pulled up to a stoplight, you know, and you notice the car next to you, and you either feel inferior or superior compared to what they're driving? I mean, it's a sick game, but it's a losing battle. See, in the GTA, we've got 6.5 million people for you to compare yourself to. And the problem is that you're only comparing the exteriors. That's all you can see. You can't see a person's heart. You can't see how happy they are. You can't see, you know, their spouses or, or anything like that. You don't know how happy they are. So you're just seeing the exterior. And second, when you compare what you have with what somebody else has, you don't know the real price that they paid for it. You really don't. You don't even know if they actually own it. The bank may own it, okay? And you don't know if they're as satisfied with it as, you know, you, they would like you to think that they are. Like they did an extensive, you know, uh, study on this, and they found that there is no real difference between people who have a lot when it comes to contentment. There's no real difference between people who have a lot and people who have almost nothing. There isn't. And it brings us into a third principle. Don't compare yourself. We need to watch the law of exposure. And this is where we get into this whole thing with ads, you know. I regularly get one of these in the mail. Uh, this is actually home hardware. And, of course, the other one is the magic triangle. You know, it's Canadian Tire. They love me so much that they send me their flyers now and in the mail and so on. I used to get them in the Economist and Sun, but now they actually send them to me. Now, I look through this thing, okay, and there's a tool in there, and I think, well, I could use that, and it's 40% off. See, if it's 40% off, that means I'm saving money, you know, and so <laughs> what more could one want than to actually save money and get what you want? See, the, the issue is when I want, look through a flyer or anything like that, I don't even know that I need it until I see it in the flyer. And as I look at it, I begin to think about it and think, well, I'm saving all this money. You know, of course I need this thing. And the thought is, well, you can't afford not to get it. But then the more rational thought is, well, you never even knew it existed before. Of course you can do without it. See, one of the weirdest things that sometimes people who follow Jesus do is that we say, God, you know, help me to be content. Help me to get a, a spending plan that I can live with and, and thrive on and, and do what I want with, you know. And then we go window shopping with a credit card in our pocket, you know, or shopping through, you know, the different catalogs or, you know, all the stuff that's on the Internet these days. And the law of exposure, I'm telling you, wins because of the fact that people who market, they know it works, and so do you, because you've gotten sucked into it just like me. 
See, there's another issue here, and that is instead of exposing yourself to the 5 or 10% who have more than you, why don't you expose yourself to the 90% in the world who have less? And I'm not trying to create some kind of guilt here. That's not fair and it's not right. But I guarantee you that it will help, you know? And if you doubt that, when COVID-19 is over, you know, and the travel restrictions are all lifted, you know, about two or three years from now, Go and visit Mornick Pile, you know, which is, the, which is the community over in Haiti that the Olive Branch is connected with and works with. I'm telling you, the lifestyle's a lot different over there. See, why would you compare yourself to the, you know, the 5% or the 10% who have more than, you know, the rest of the world? You have to be rational about this. And we need a true perspective on money. See, money is money. People go crazy over this stuff, you know. But I'm telling you, if somebody found a lump of gold in their backyard, it wouldn't be enough. They would always go out and they would try to find more. You know, with money, you can buy health coverage, but I'm telling you, you can't buy health. With, you know, money, you can buy a house, but you can't necessarily buy a home. You know, with money, you can buy your kids all kinds of cool things and so on for them to have, but you can't buy their love and you can't, you know, buy their safety. Money is money and it has extreme limits on it and you just have to remember that. So, you got to watch the law of exposure, and have it work for you instead of working against you. There's a fourth principle in the Bible when it comes to finding contentment, and that's put people before stuff. And this is sometimes tough in our lives because the stuff is always there and so on, and we, we sometimes see people as obstacles to get through to get our stuff. It's important to realize, now you know this, but it's important to remember all the time that you love people and you use stuff. And if you get that reversed somehow in your life, it creates all kinds of problems. And it'll create problems between you and God too. I want you to do something this morning as you're watching this uh, broadcast. I want you to think about the most memorable and impactful experience that you've ever had in your life. What was it? If you want to tell somebody afterwards, you can do that. We don't have time to do that now. But I would be willing to bet my pension that, you know, the most memorable experience wasn't about a promotion. It wasn't about a car that you got. It wasn't about some Christmas bonus. It wasn't about some new house that you got. It was about a relationship. I can guarantee that because our relational world is the most meaningful part of our lives. You know, I've done a lot of fun things. I've traveled with bands. I've got a number of degrees. I've done some really fun things. Bought a few cars, you know, including a Mercury Sable that I loved, you know, and two homes. But I'm telling you, these aren't the experiences that I cherish. My most memorable times have been with people. And what happens sometimes is that we get so, much, so busy earning this stuff that we don't have time for the relational world, time to build into it. Write this down someplace. Learning to be content involves me coming to, the, coming to terms with the fact that I don't need more money. I don't need more attention. I don't need more you know, followers or toys or possessions to engage in the most fulfilling thing that God has given to us. And that is to be active in my relational world and love people the way I love myself. Here's the tragedy. It's possible to spend so much time trying to, again, like I said, make this stuff that you don't have the time to do the very things that will fill your heart with the most joy and contentment. Now here at the Olive Branch, one of the things that we do, we haven't been able to gather now for, what, eight months? Longer than that, actually. 
What we want to do is we want to promote this. We want people to be in life groups. We want people to be able to be together. And we will gather again. I'm not sure when that's going to be. It may be a ways down the road. But we will gather because that's what the church is. The church is gathered people. It may look a lot differently, but gathering will always be a part of who we are. Another part of contentment is basically realizing that you can't live by the cookie monster philosophy of life, you know, and and be content. Anybody remember the cookie monster? I mean, I think from what I understand that they put him on a diet and made him eat veggies and stuff like this. But his philosophy was, me see cookie, me want cookie, me eat cookie. Did he ever get enough cookies? Like was, you know, there ever a point where you saw him on there and he's got crumbs and, you know, and his whiskers and all this stuff, you know, and, and he's holding his cookie. He says, oh, I can't, me can't eat another cookie, me fool. Nobody. <laughs> Never did that, okay? Never got enough. And if you want to find contentment, you have to reject this philosophy of more, that you've got to have more. And listen to what Jesus has to say. His philosophy was, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. He said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened with life, and I will give you rest. And that's what contentment is. Rest at the very core of your soul, being content. Now, you know what Paul's secret is to being content? He says this. He says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. God has to be a part of the equation. And this first part is something that, you know, has largely been forgotten by our world. But I'll tell you, there is a a vacuum in our hearts, and it's a God-shaped vacuum. And part of the issue you see with more is that we're trying to stuff that vacuum with, you know, more toys and more cameras and more phones and, and you know, cars and all these other things. And it can't, it can't be filled with that. That's like eating grass as a human being and thinking that it's going to satisfy you and nourish you. There's only one person who can fill that vacuum, and that's God himself. And I'll tell you, that happens. He offers himself to us all, anybody who will come. And it's when we get on our knees and say, God, I need you so much. I've failed. I've sinned. I've need forgiven. I need your forgiveness for my past. I need your forgiveness for my present. I I need you to come into the core of my life, and I need you to fill this God-shaped vacuum down in the core of me that I try to stuff with all these other things. And he's promised that he would come. He'd come to anyone who asks. I'll tell you, I can't fully explain how it works, but that submission ends this whole striving, fighting, trying to get more. And it gives us the kind of love that is not dependent on our circumstances. What you find is you find that you have tremendous value. That the one who made the universe knows your name, and he loves you more than you could possibly imagine. You feel secure inside because the whole eternity thing is settled and your heavenly Father who controls everything is crazy about you and he's promised to help you wherever you find yourself. And you have power. You have power to say no to the monster of more that lives down inside. And the alternative, you see, is trying to, is trying to stuff that God-shaped vacuum you know, with all the other stuff in the world. And there's more to it. See, More has to do with what Jesus said about seeking God's kingdom. He says, put God's kingdom first. In other words, there is a kingdom, and it involves everything that God is up to, everything that he's doing on this planet. Seeking to put him first. Seek him first. It means to actually put him first. And you think about that. 
Why would you put yourself first? Why would you put anything else first? God, who is the king in this kingdom, he says, I want to do something. I want to do something through your life. And if you've invited Jesus into your life and asked him to forgive you and make you new and give you life, you know, you can't reduce your relationship with him, you know, to some kind of a fire insurance or something like that. Why would you ever put him as fourth or fifth or tenth place in what he's trying to do? Because when you do that, it means that you've believed, you know, one of the biggest lies in our world. And it means that something other than being devoted to Jesus Christ and letting him work through your life is going to satisfy you and bring bring you contentment. And you won't find contentment apart from that. I want you again to notice what this verse says. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Let's get specific about this. I mean, you know, what kinds of things does God give us the strength to do? Well, he gives us the strength to make a difference in the world, right? He helps us to show where we can make a difference. He helps us to accomplish our mission in life. You think you can find meaning and satisfaction without living out the mission that Jesus has called you to and created you for? He gives, us, he gives us the power to be generous and to be kind to others. He gives us the generous to be, he gives us the power to be patient with others and treat them with dignity and respect. And I'll tell you, when you are at the center of what God wants to do in your life and do through your life, it brings incredible meaning. And it may be tough. That's what Paul was doing. Paul was, you know, he was in prison because he was trying to fulfill God's mission for his life. And he says, right in those circumstances, I know what it's like to have a lot. I know what it's like to have, you know, very little. And he says, but I'm content. I've learned the secret. I'm happy. And God was able to use his life in a powerful way. And what happens? He poured his life into other people. And when you do that, it comes pouring back at you. It makes a difference in your life. Finally, just to make it as simple as possible, you have to choose meaning over money. You choose meaning over money. And if you do that, I will guarantee you that contentment will follow. See, that's how fair God is. Loving relationships and a meaningful and purposeful life, you know, that's available to the people who have an education and the people who don't. It's available to the rich and it's available to the poor. It's available to people who have a little bit of stuff and people who have a lot of stuff. It's available to every single person. I'm telling you, Every single person on this planet is looking to be content. They're looking for contentment at the core of their lives. And God will pour his strength into you to find and accomplish the purpose that he has for you. Choose to be a grateful person. Don't compare yourself with other people. Get the law of exposure working for you. Understand what's going on, and what, you know, the whole ad marketing thing is trying to do. They believe in the law of exposure, but it takes you in a different direction. Invest deeply in meaningful relationships and choose meaning over money. Choose Jesus over money. I don't know how many of you follow football, but back in 1969, by the way, I'm going to put these up here so that you can see them and review them. Back in 1969, uh, Minnesota Vikings were playing the San Francisco 49ers when the 49ers fumbled the ball. Now, I don't know what you know about football, but when the ball gets fumbled, it's fair game, and whichever side picks it up first has the ball. So this massive Vikings defensive end named Jim Marshall, he scoops up this ball, and he begins running for the touchdown, okay? Now, the problem is he ran the wrong way. So he scored, you know, for the 49ers instead, you know, and one of the 49ers came over after he'd, you know, crossed the, crossed the end, you know, and patted him on the back and said, man, thanks, Jim, you know, of course, he wasn't real grateful about that. But then football's just a game, right? 
Some people don't think so, but football is actually just a game. Jim was fine. He went on to play in two Super Bowls and, you know, had a 20-year career, and he did just, he just, he did just fine. But I'm telling you, if you've run the wrong way in life, the implications are horrendous because you've got one life. you got one life. And if you run in the wrong direction thinking that if you just get more, you're going to find contentment, what will happen is, you know, somebody's going to congratulate you when you cross the line at the end, but it's not going to be Jesus. Because we have one life and we are called to live with meaning. God loves us and he treats us with the most dangerous gift he's ever given. It's called free will. And he won't force you to do what he wants. He won't force you into contentment. He won't force you into relationship with you. But I'm telling you, he knows what will satisfy you. And if you listen to him, he will help you to find the secret of contentment. That's my prayer for you. Let's pray together. God, we go in a lot of different directions looking for contentment. Sometimes our goal in life is to make other people covet our lives and covet what we have and covet who we marry and covet our looks and all these things, which is often a totally different tangent. But sometimes we just spend our lives looking and looking and wanting and wanting and thinking that it's going to be the next thing, thinking it's going to be the next combination of things that we're going to kind of win the contentment lottery. When you know that the secret is much better than that, Help us to not try to buy contentment. We can't afford it. Help us to accept it as the gift that you give to people who follow you. We need your help. Amen.